It's Thursday, March 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. death toll has risen to 11 people after officials reported the first death in California that was connected to a cruise ship that traveled from the U.S. to Mexico. Los Angeles has also declared a health emergency after six new cases were confirmed there, one of which was a worker at LAX who screens incoming flights from China. Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles, joins us for the latest and why we might all have to be practicing social distancing. Next, after Super Tuesday and the shocking performance of Joe Biden, we now have a two-way race for the Democratic nomination. Biden and Bernie Sanders are now on the hunt for the most delegates. Bloomberg got out of the race, and Elizabeth Warren is reassessing what to do after her dismal performance. Max Greenwood, politics reporter at The Hill, joins us for the top takeaways from Super Tuesday. Finally, the Pentagon is sitting on a bunch of valuable airwaves, and we don't know exactly why. As more companies are getting ready to set up 5G networks, they will require large swaths of airways that live in the mid-band set of frequencies. But the Pentagon owns much of these airwaves and doesn't want to let go. Brian Bender, senior national correspondent at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We've come together across Los Angeles County this morning to offer this information, this guidance, and I hope some reassurance uh, to the residents of Los Angeles about COVID-19. Uh, we've all seen the headlines and followed the news. We know the threats that this virus um, uh, has introduced to communities, not just here in this country, but around the globe. But our main message is that the city of Los Angeles, other cities in the county, and the county of Los Angeles have done everything possible to be ready. Joining us now is Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Steve. My pleasure, Oscar. The U.S. death toll from COVID-19 has risen to 11 people. There was some more reported in Washington State. And the first death in California, they said that one is connected to a cruise ship that traveled from the U.S. to Mexico. That happened in Placer County, California. They said it was an elderly resident, had underlying health conditions, and that's kind of been the case for all the deaths in the U.S. so far, a lot of underlying health conditions. But there were some new cases reported in Los Angeles also, and they decided to declare a health emergency. And states and counties and cities across the country are going to start doing this as this keeps spreading. They said it's not a cause for alarm. It really helps the coordination effort. So we're going to use L.A. kind of as an example, but you're going to start hearing this all across the country. Steve, tell us more about L.A. declaring this health emergency. States of emergency for people to know is that it's basically a method in which to free up funding, resources, supplies. People are most commonly hearing state of emergency after a tornado, an earthquake, a flood, and when they call in FEMA and things like that. Well, in a health crisis like this, states of emergency do exactly the same thing as other natural disasters. And that is that document allows the federal government to tap into a reserve fund or a state government or a regional government. And they're able to get these funds to help them pay for overtime, additional staffing, more testing kits. And in Los Angeles, actually, in some cases, a little overdue to do this because we had already had the six confirmed cases. And we also know that they've tested at least 650 people in the Los Angeles County area thus far. And only the six have come out with the actual confirmation of the virus. What do we know about the new cases in L.A., these six cases? We do know that they all originated from the same travel situation. And that means they've ruled out that it was person to person in California or in Southern California itself. 
But basically, those infected were a result of inbound travel from northern Italy. People had been traveling there, come back together as a group, and then they splintered off after they got into the Los Angeles County area. And then they were sort of having to work to contain all of them. But they found the point of origin for the virus of all of those six cases. I did read, and correct me if I'm wrong, they said that the sixth case was a person who works in a field that exposes them to international travelers. It's a worker at the Los Angeles International Airport, and that worker was inside of it, what they call an airline transit lounge. So this could be one of those VIP lounges, something along those lines. One of the other interesting things that Los Angeles officials were talking about this was this notion of social distancing. It caught my ear right away. There's different efforts to try to stem the spread of things. So we know about isolating patients that are infected from other people so that doesn't get out. Quarantining, we've heard about that. But social distancing is this other element to this. Tell us about that, because that one kind of leads into when you start hearing about ghost towns, people not going out, or I think the line was stay six feet away from strangers. Basically, all we're saying is be aware of your personal space and make sure you're aware of others' personal space. That's really what that boils down to. It's a very fancy term that medical professionals use, and especially in this case, epidemiologists and others that have to deal with mass situations. There have been a lot of meetings with those that run venues here. We have Staples Center. We have the Microsoft Center. We have a lot of venues in Los Angeles where lots of people gather, and that's a big problem right now, but it really boils down to common sense. And that's what the health director of the Los Angeles County Health Department was really trying to get across. The declaration of state of emergency is just an administrative function. There's no need to panic. Wash your hands. Make sure you're aware of your space around you. Don't crowd someone else. Be cognizant of when you go into a public space, into a restroom or anything like that. Just be aware of your surroundings. We keep talking about this declarations of health emergencies. House lawmakers on Wednesday agreed to a deal to allocate about $8 billion to help federal governments fight the coronavirus. Some of this money will go to state officials and trickle on down. So that's why it's important that these cities and, and counties and all start declaring these health emergencies. And as I mentioned, we're talking about L.A. specifically, but there's at least 13 states that have reported coronavirus cases since late January. So this is going to start popping up as this keeps spreading. And you mentioned testing kits and all as they do more tests. We'll see the numbers increase, but still, by and large, not any reason to start panicking just yet. Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Oscar. We want a nominee who will beat Donald Trump. But also, also keep Nancy Pelosi the Speaker of the House. Win back the United States Senate. If that's what you want, join us. And if you want a nominee who's a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat, a proud Democrat, an Obama-Biden Democrat, join us. Joining us now is Max Greenwood, politics reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Max. Thanks for having me. Well, Super Tuesday came and went, and it was crazy. We now have pretty much a two-way race between Bernie Sanders and former Vice President Joe Biden. Joe Biden coming out of nowhere, seemingly, he won a ton of states. And really, Joe Biden's campaign had been rumored to have no money. They were on their back heels. Nobody knew really what was going to happen. And then, boom, he won a ton of states. 
picked up a lot of delegates. Max, tell us a little bit about the rise of Joe Biden. People were calling it Joe Mentum, even. I think up until last week, we were really kind of wondering whether or not he was going to pull through. So the South Carolina primary looking a little bit uncertain. The polls were showing a closer race. And he gets this last minute endorsement from Jim Clyburn, the uh, highest ranking black member of Congress. And that starts this series of wins. It starts in South Carolina. He wins 30 point margin. Then in the days that follow that, you have Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar drop out of the race. So two of his top moderate rivals. And they endorse him. And that brings us to Super Tuesday, where he kind of just runs a gamut. He wins 10 states, states that Bernie Sanders won in 2016. He placed first in Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren's home state. And he really just kind of racked up the score on Tuesday night in a way that I don't think anyone was really expecting. From real clear politics, the last delegate count we have, and these numbers are subject to change as all the votes completely come in. Biden with 566 delegates, Sanders with 501, and then Elizabeth Warren with 61, Bloomberg with 53. That's that big rise that Biden got, and it's all about the delegates. Yeah, that's right. It's all about the delegates. I mean, after all, this is a primary. It's all going to come down to the convention in July. And it's the first person to, you know, about 2,000 delegates, 1991 to be exact. But certainly, I don't think a lot of politicos, a lot of reporters were expecting Biden to come out of Super Tuesday with a delegate lead. But what we saw is, in Texas in particular, Bernie Sanders was doing pretty well early on in the night. And it was that late-breaking vote, the day of votes, that really pushed Joe Biden over the edge. So he ended up coming out of Super Tuesday with the best-case scenario. He's in the lead in terms of delegates. And if we look at the states coming past this, we have Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota next week. We have Florida, Ohio, Arizona later this month. And a lot of the states are states that Joe Biden is positioned very well in. The next big thing is to see if Elizabeth Warren will get out. She's really doesn't seem like she has a pathway to the nomination. But the big question for her will be who to endorse there. Does she endorse Bernie Sanders, who she was kind of contentious with at times during debates and whatnot? Or does she go the moderate route, which is not really her lane, and endorse Joe Biden? It seems like that's the biggest question for her. Uh, you know, her campaign has said they're reassessing what they're going to be doing. I think there is a big question about what she still is doing in this race. She hasn't had a great showing in any of the primaries or caucuses so far. Or even her own um, state. You know, well, she came in third place in her own state, and that's far worse than she was expecting. You know, if anything, I think there was a possibility that Bernie Sanders took Massachusetts, but Joe Biden, who spent virtually no money there, came out on top and she finished in a relatively distant third. So there is this big question of what she's still doing. She says she's reassessing, but it seems like she's dragging her feet on this a little bit. In terms of the endorsement, who she backs, when or if she actually gets out of the race, I think that's an open question. Bernie Sanders is a longtime ally of hers. They both occupy the same kind of progressive lane. You know, she said multiple times at debates and town halls, I'm with Bernie on a lot of these issues. So it's not entirely surprising that she could throw her support behind him. On the other hand, she's found herself at odds with his progressive base at times. And that really started January or February around the time that she essentially accused Bernie Sanders of telling her a couple of years ago, I don't think a woman can win the presidency. Yeah. That earned her a lot of backlash from Sanders supporters and I think could have jaded her a little bit. The other flop, I guess you could say, was Michael Bloomberg. Uh, he spent like half a billion dollars of his own money in this race. The first time he was on the ballots were in Super Tuesday. All he won was American Samoa, and he got out of the race. He endorsed Joe Biden. The big thing now is 
he paid his staffers. He's got everything going all the way till November, the big operation that he has going. I'm assuming that's going to be the big benefit that Joe Biden is going to get from that. Michael Bloomberg is keeping his staff around until November at the very least. So he's got a huge political operation that he can throw behind Joe Biden and help him push him over the edge. And that operation is based in states that Joe Biden doesn't have a large presence yet. So I'm thinking Florida in particular. It's a lot of delegates. It's the fourth largest state in terms of delegates. And Bloomberg's been campaigning hard there. Biden, on the other hand, has been relatively slow to step up his efforts in these states beyond the first four primaries and caucuses in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. So I think that Bloomberg political machine that he's spent about half a billion dollars building over the past three months or so is going to come in an enormously useful piece of political machinery for Biden as he tries to pave his way into the top tier, into that front runner status once again. Max Greenwood, politics reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The Pentagon is very reluctant to auction off any more of this mid-band spectrum because once they auction it off and they give the rights, if you will, to a private company to manage it, to run it, they don't have primary domain anymore. Joining us now is Brian Bender, senior national correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Glad to be here. We're going to be talking about 5G. A lot of tech companies are getting ready for a rollout. Some phones might already be 5G compatible. But what happens is that where all of this lives is this real estate of invisible bandwidth and valuable airwaves. It lives in this mid-band range. And right now the Pentagon is sitting on a chunk of huge valuable airwaves. A lot of people are saying that this could be putting us at a disadvantage that they're not releasing a lot of these airwaves when we're competing with places like China. Brian, tell us a little bit about this mid-band airwaves. Well, this is basically the consequence of an approach to managing the electromagnetic spectrum radio waves that the U.S. government took going back many, many decades ago, where certain wavelengths were reserved for government use. And not surprisingly, a big chunk was reserved for the military. So this mid-band, which is kind of in the middle of the electromagnetic spectrum, is some of the juiciest territory, if you will, for 5G, because those frequencies travel far, they can carry lots of data, they can broadcast through obstructions like buildings and skyscrapers and all those kinds of things. And so the telecommunications companies that want to build out a 5G network are anxious to get access to more of those wavelengths. And the way it works is the government, when it controls parts of the spectrum, it ends up auctioning off portions of it to the private sector. And it's done that many times in many different cases over the years. But in this case, the Pentagon is very reluctant to auction off any more of this mid-band spectrum because once they auction it off and they give the rights, if you will, to a private company to manage it, to run it, they don't have primary domain anymore. And it's not really clear how much the Pentagon really uses the mid-band spectrum. It certainly uses it for some things, for radars. Some people suggest the nuclear weapons, sort of command and control systems are run on some of those frequencies. And so you sort of have this situation now where the U.S. wants to develop a 5G network for commercial use, for the public, for all kinds of new 
devices and gadgets that we're using in our homes, in our work, in our lives. But there's this wall that they're running up against where some of the access to this spectrum is controlled by the Pentagon. And it puts the U.S. telecommunications industry at a disadvantage because, as I said at the beginning, this was an approach to managing radio waves that the United States took, but a lot of other countries did not. So China can build out its 5G network, as it's been doing in leaps and bounds, and do it in a way where it's outpacing, not only because of this, but in part because U.S. companies are basically prevented from using some of these frequencies. And talking about how valuable these are, there was a 2015 auction of some of these federally controlled airwaves, and that raised nearly $45 billion. So this is, as we've been saying, valuable real estate in that area. And the big question is, you know, what does the Pentagon do with it? They're saying they're using it for certain military operations and whatnot, but how much and how much can they afford to give away? There's been certain plans that have been thrown out there. Well, maybe you can kind of rent it or borrow it. Um, but there's also going to be limitations and problems with that. That's where the debate is kind of focused now. And there's differences of opinion on this within the U.S. government and even within the U.S. military. We spoke to some senior officials, including some retired generals who have said, listen, the Pentagon could do without more of this. There are newer technologies. There are newer, more innovative ways they could do their job, but still at the same time, give up access to some of this stuff. There's clearly people in the Trump administration who would like to come up with some way that, as you suggested, the Pentagon could share this spectrum with the private sector. So set up some sort of arrangement where they could both use it at different times for different purposes. There's also been a proposal by some close supporters of the president to sort of bring in a wholesaler, if you will, a private company that comes in and sort of manages this, both for the telecommunications industry, but also for the government use. And so, as some of the people pointed out, it's really more of a political problem than it is a technological one. Most people agree there are ways to technologically figure out how to do this, how the Pentagon can get what it needs, and the telecommunications industry can have what it needs. But it's going to take big bureaucracies and entrenched interests that are kind of tied to the status quo to change. And as we all know, the Pentagon is one of those big bureaucracies that doesn't like to change. And I think one of the reasons why they're resistant is that even if they're not using all of the mid-band spectrum, there's this notion that someday they might need it. And if we just give it away, we'll never get it back. And so we need to be very careful about how we go about doing this. But I think the pressure is growing given the advancements that other companies outside the U.S. are making in 5G, particularly in China. And I think the concern, even increasingly within the U.S. military, is that the global 5G network will be run by an autocratic country, an autocratic regime that doesn't have the same legal rules of the road that we do. And that will really put us at a disadvantage. And oh, by the way, the U.S. military also uses commercial communication systems, private sector communication systems to do some of its day-to-day operations. So you could see uh, entering a world where the U.S. military itself will have to rely on a Chinese-run communication network because that's the only game in town in some part of the world. Brian Bender, Senior National Correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram.
Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.